Jewish audio on Chabad.org. This is again in conversations with Chana. I'm Chana Weisberg, editor of the Jewishwoman.org. I'm joined today with Chai Rachel Rach Zimmerman, who is a mother of 11 and a grandmother of many. And in the later stages of her life, she decided to change crafts and become a writer in order to share awareness of very important societal issues. Chai Rachel has written two books. One is called Lemons in the Fog, which is all about mental health awareness. And the other book is called The Next Pair of Shoes, which is about the saga of an immigrant and how it is for an immigrant to move to a new country and the challenges that they go through. So welcome me and joining Chai Rachel Zimmerman. Welcome to our show, Chai Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us today. I want to thank you very much for inviting me. It's very exciting to be able to share my little piece of the world with your audience. And uh, I want to grant you a good health and blessings that you should continue on with this uh, very interesting and informative show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chai Rachel. So Chai Rachel, tell us a little about your background, a little about yourself. Why don't you introduce yourself to our viewers? Well, um, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. Um, a little bit quieter than the rest of New York City. <laughs> and uh, I attended public school there, and then I went on to um, to Brooklyn College and University of Maryland, where I got degrees in education and mathematics. And um, from then, I continued on to do some uh, higher-level Judaic studies at Mahalchana and Beis Rifka, both in Brooklyn, New York. And afterwards, I, um, I got married and moved to Chicago. So we've been here for uh, many years. And uh, I've been very active in the community. When I moved here, it was really a small, fledgling community. And it grew in leaps and bounds over the years. With a group of um, five other families, we co-founded a Yiddish-speaking elementary school. And I remained on the school board for many years. And at the right time, we then continued on to a Jewish girls' high school. And I also was on, served on the school board for many years. Um, I also was involved in a lot of programming in the community. Uh, there were, um, I did some children's groups, after school children's groups. I started a preschool summer camp. Um, I worked on educational programming for women. And then as other groups uh, hopped up, we were, you know, the, the founders starting the groups. There was one group um, uh, learning Torah with, with mothers who were looking for matches for their children. And we had another group that would make meals for um, for mothers after birth for um, so that they would have a little respite, and we would send over meals. That's some of the projects I was involved in. It sounds like you're very busy. That's a, along with having 11 children. Yes. <laughs> and, and now many, many grandchildren, I think, like close to 40, you said, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, so you've been pretty busy in your work. Do you consider yourself like a pioneer? I mean, you were there for many, many, you were there in Chicago many years ago and starting off a lot of Jewish organizations there. Were you kind of like a pioneer who likes to venture into new territory? You know, I never really thought about it like that because I didn't, I wasn't really the, the person that had the, the depth of wisdom to see what needed to be done. I was just the one that felt dedicated to fill in that need and to develop it. Um, you know, I often wonder where did I get that, that, um, that desire for, and I guess 
it's really what you see in your parents' home. So I remember my father had a little uh, butter and egg business and he would drop off very quietly at people's houses food that needed it. Even then later on when he sold his business and he became the shamash, the caretaker of the synagogue, he would actually bring food from the leftover bar mitzvah food from the kiddush and he would drop it off at widow's houses. So I saw that kind of thing going on in my family and my mother used to take us on visits to relatives who at one point or another weren't feeling well, and she would care for them and take her children along to help her. So I saw that, and then my mother, um, later on in life, they needed some women to work with the Chavar Kedisha, the Jewish Burial Society, to wash the, the, the ritual washing of the bodies before they buried them, and so they drafted my mother to do that. Oh, so wow. I saw this kind of dedication to community activities, and I guess I just picked up on that. You're following in their footsteps. That's interesting. So, Chai Rachel, you have you've done a lot of educational work in educational fields, work in in uh, in promoting different educational activities and 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 um, ventures. Um, you have a degree also in mathematics. You have a degree in education. What made you at this stage in your life decide you want to become a writer, a novelist? Well, the truth of the matter is it wasn't premeditated. <laughs> I've been wanting to do all my life. So, you know, if you would have told me I'd be writing novels at the age of 70, I would have laughed at you because no way it was going to be true. Um, and I actually had an English professor in college that um, for a writing class that didn't like anything I wrote. And it was one of the rare courses in school that I got to see it. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's discouraging. <laughs> I never really thought about writing. But I did love when my last son went away to yeshiva, I had a short window of opportunity where the house was quiet and not used to sitting around looking at the walls. So I, I looked online to see maybe there's some courses, some continuing education of some kind. And I came across a course, a very short course, six weeks only, of uh, writing magazine articles. So I said, oh, you know, I can handle that. I'm, I'm college educated. And I had written maybe um, – you know, a few brochures, some pamphlets. You know, I'd written maybe a, a speech for an MC or a flyer. So I thought that was within my capabilities. So once I took that course, it just sort of whet my appetite. So I went on to take another course, a very short course in creative writing. And I followed that up with a course in writing novels. Now, I never thought I would write a novel, except that that course had things about uh, dialogue, setting, narration, you know, short story structure. So I thought I could use that information. But of course, one thing led to another. And by the time the course was over, I had about um, the outline of 50 scenes. Mm -hmm. So I think, oh, gee, I'd be kind of foolish not to finish this. Well, of course, I was very naive. <laughs> and um, if I would have known what it entailed and how much hours and work, I don't think I would have started. Well, so sometimes it's good not to know what you're throwing yourself into, I guess. <laughs> um, was it challenging to, at this stage in your life, to kind of reinvent yourself? What What is it like? I mean, I know so many women nowadays have to reinvent themselves, you know, with the change in economy, with the change in jobs, with the change in society the way it is. It's not like we can just sometimes be one thing and just stay at that for the rest of our lives, but we are constantly reinventing ourselves at different stages of our life. What are some tips that you might have for women who are doing that or what are your thoughts on, 
a person reinventing themselves and changing careers to become something completely different than what they ever envisioned of themselves. Well, first of all, your point about change is so true. One of the constants in life is change. You know, our hairstyles change, our clothes change. The, the food I eat now, I said I would never eat that food or the diets I'm on now. And people change jobs, people change neighborhoods. So there is a lot of change. And I mean, I had three children. I never imagined I'd be raising 11 children. I went to public school. I never imagined I'd be living a life steeped in Hasidus. It just wasn't the kind of change that I thought. And reinventing yourself is, does involve a learning curve, a steep learning curve, especially where I was going into something very specific where you really needed certain skills and craft that I didn't yet have. But, you know, I just feel that, that Hashem is the one, you know, the one above is the one who's guiding us even invisibly if we can't see it. But there is there is a somebody who's pointing us in the right direction. And I think, you know, like I said to myself, like, gee, I should have done this years ago. Like, I'm so enjoying it, and I'm having some success at it. And, and I say, why, why did I do this two or three decades ago? But then I have to stop and think, you know, how much writing would I have gotten done with 11 kids running around the house? Hmm. Or how much energy would I have had really to, like, stay up late hours into the night writing or even years writing on the same thing without giving up. I mean, if I would have had one rejection, then would I have continued on? Yeah. I'm not sure I would have done any of those things. So I think back to myself and I say, you know, and, and there's also another piece that's very important is that I now have a lot of life experience and I hope that I have some maturity to interpret those life experiences because that's what I'm writing about. So I say to myself, not only is now the right time for me to be writing, but I think it's perhaps it's the best time for me to be writing. Right. That's that's very interesting. I mean, you, you say you you you've you learned so much. You you learned in Machon Chana. Is is that something that you learned from your Hasidus in Machon Chana about this idea of God running the world and just leaving it up to Him and just being that vessel, I guess, of what where he wants to lead us? Well, there's always a balance. There is a balance between what we do and what Hashem brings down for us. And we have to blend the two and we have to know when to give up and when to continue. It's such um, a hard, hard, hard balance sometimes to know that. Yes, very, very hard. And But we do keep going and we see results. Did you find a lot of challenges in becoming a writer? Was it difficult to, to yeah, change tracks? It was a steep learning curve. I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have the language. I didn't know anything about editing, printing, publishing, publicity, um, story structure, narration. I just didn't. It was a whole new world. But I really, I really took to it. I really enjoyed it. And um, I'm really, uh, you know, working it through. Um, I, found, I found the topics that you decided to write about very intriguing. I mean, the first book that you wrote about was mental health. What brought you to that? What brought you to write about that? Well, mental health has been climbing in the general population at large and in the Jewish population at large. But even though it's climbing, the numbers, not everyone seeks help. There's many, many people who are not getting any kind of professional help. And there's quite a few reasons for that. Of course, there's the stigma or the shame that comes with it. There's also the secrecy. So even if you were to want to ask somebody, you don't know who to approach. 
That's part. That, that's also part of the problem. And the other part of the problem is that you can't really tell if it's mental illness. First of all, there's no diagnosis that you can't take a blood test. You can't take an X-ray. You can't say this is di- this is di- mental illness. All the different ki- diagnoses overlap each other, and um, and and the thing is that it interferes with daily life. And it doesn't go away by itself if you don't do something about it. So that being the case, I realized, you know, there is a need of of awareness. There's a need of understanding and knowing what it is, what it's all about. How can you help yourself? How can someone help you? And I tried to put a lot of that into the novel. So how did you learn about mental health? Like, did you study it? Did you, what made you feel you you're capable of writing about it or about those experiences so i have certain relatives that i saw that had some mental illness difficulties and um i saw what goes on in those families so the first thing that goes on in those families is a lot of confusion and then there's a lot of anguish and then there's a lot of anger and these families don't have anyone to ask they, they you know confidentiality they just don't know where to go, where to turn to. And then what happens is you end up with a lot of um, crushed families who want to help and don't know how to help. And it's a cycle. And, and it, it, you know, it's not, it's not like it's going to go away by itself. You can't just say to somebody, which is what people do say is, well, if he only tried harder, you know, somebody who doesn't get out of bed in the morning, well, are they lazy? Are they tired? Do they have mental illness? I mean, where does the questions end? And then, and then you have also, um, you have people that, that you could say, oh, he's just stubborn. Or he just doesn't like to work. He quits his job every time he gets a job. So it's really hard to clearly say what it is. It's definitely a chemical imbalance in the brain. But it can't be diagnosed so easily. So that's where professionals come in. And if you don't know how to get to those professionals, then you're lost. Right. So what was a message that you really wanted people to know about mental health from your book? So I mean, I have, you, wrote, you wrote it in a very intriguing way. And there was just so many, I felt messages and stories within the story. You know, you, you just describe a boy and he's going through these, these, he has schizophrenia. He's going through this real mental health issue. But what was the message that you wanted your readers to take from there? Well, the first thing I really wanted people to know is that this could be somebody in your family. My main character, Mayor, is a very loving son. You know, he is on the path. He's going to school. He's interested in life. He is not a loser. He could be your brother, your sister, your mother, your, you know, your uncle. He could be somebody that we love and who's very dear to us. But when somebody is going through some kind of mental illness crisis, they don't understand it and they don't know how to get themselves out of it. So some of the things I really wanted to do was to raise awareness that this is happening in the Jewish Orthodox community and and allow them to see someone going through this cycle from beginning to end so that they can recognize it and understand exactly what it looks like. Um, Actually, if you don't mind, I have this email that came to me in May. Um, And I want to read just a few lines of this email from someone I don't know who she is. She wrote, Dear Mrs. Zimmerman, 
I want to tell you that your book has been a real life changer for me. Whatever you set out to accomplish when writing it was fulfilled a thousand times for me. Finally, through your accurate description, guised by a fascinating novel, I am beginning to accept my mental illness. I have a long way to go in accepting all its ramifications in my life, but I have read your book about 10 times in the past few weeks. It is real, it is poignant, and it's filled with precious hope. You have done something remarkable, brave, and encouraging in the firm community. You have broken through ridiculous stigmas to find a publisher who is willing to publish this very important work. Wow, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, so I, wow. Yeah, <laughs> I, wow. So, so that to me was like, okay, I did it. I'm, you know, I'm helping somebody. That was my goal. And, um, and, and the other important thing I wanted to do, there's a few things. People who are going through this mental illness crisis feel very alone. When they read this book and they say, oh, this person understands me, this person recognizes me, this person, you know, gets it. So if somebody doesn't get it, I can now have a book, I can give it to them and say, look, you want to understand me, read this. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they, they have it and then they feel that they don't feel alone, that people understand what they're going through. So that was another part I wanted to do. And then, the loneliness is really hard, and that's exasperated by the stigma part because no one is talking with the stigma or the secrecy part because people aren't talking about it. Do you feel right. that there's less of a stigma like nowadays? Because it seems like everyone's talking about mental health and mental health awareness. See, originally there were no there were no orthodox therapists. People were very reluctant to go to somebody who wasn't religious or couldn't understand my way of life. Because how do I put this in context for them? Now there are many. And I think that has opened up a whole new uh, avenue for people to feel safer talking to somebody who understands the language that we speak, the world that we live in. And so that's why I wrote it specifically in the Jewish, with the setting of a Jewish Orthodox family, so that people could feel comfortable that this really portrays me. Right. Wow. Interesting. Um, so other things I really wanted to accomplish with the book. One was to show a path to stability. And I showed that through the course of the book. And the other thing I wanted to do was to put those confidential resources at the end of the book. So somebody wouldn't have to call somebody. They could just say, ah, here are resources. Mm -hmm. and, and it was a little bit of a, a, a fight about that because the publisher didn't want to agree to put that in the back of the book at the beginning. And I said, but that's the point of the book, I need to give them, I need to leave with something that they can access. And so she, they thought about it and they said, well, if I put it in my author's note, mm -hmm. so that it's under my, my responsibility and it's not the public's responsibility that they are, um, you know, that they are, you know, like they are acknowledging, you know, this, these organizations. Right. So, but they did allow me to put it in. I was very grateful for that. Interesting. Did you feel, did you find as you were writing it that you were taking uh, stories or episodes from your own life? You, you mentioned that you have a close relative who had, I think, schizophrenia or panic attacks or both. Um, right. Did you find that you were taking inspiration from or examples or situations from your own personal life in the book? 
I definitely took examples from them and, and I wove my story around. That's more than one person. <laughs> and I wove my story about them. And I also wove it through certain incidents that I saw in the community. I remember one time seeing a woman in the synagogue who um, she had been on medications and she stopped taking her medications. And she was in the synagogue screaming and ranting at everyone because she was temporarily off the medications that were keeping her stable. So I remember that, and there are incidents in the community. I remember a woman um, walking into school one day and the principal was trying to explain to her about some of the behaviors of her child. And she was saying, there's nothing wrong with my child. Mm -hmm. And not being able to see past what's going on. So yeah, there are many incidents. And I also had, over the years, um, I guess because I was um, a non-professional and non-judgmental and approachable, so I've had people come to me with certain issues to discuss them. And I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't send them to anybody else that I knew had a problem because you have to keep confidentiality. So I, I can't, you know, I can't uh, make them not trust me, but I can't hook them up with anybody that could help them. So by writing this book, I felt that I was able to do that. Right. Interesting. Um, your, your other book is all about an immigrant and immigration. And that is a really, I mean, nowadays we have the refugees from Ukraine who are immigrating out of force to different communities. There's so many refugees from all different places. There's immigrants from all over. You know, we as a nation are know what it, know very well what it means to be immigrants. What was your message that you wanted to give over at two immigrants? So actually, it's the same thread that's going to run through all of my novels I'm trying, which is a thread of some kind of common uh, phenomenon that makes everyone feel alone. Mm -hmm. And So by writing about that experience, I can sort of pull them together and help them feel that that there is somebody who's aware of what they're going through. So, so what think makes us feel alone? So an immigrant, there's a, this country is made up of immigrants. And like you said, the Jewish people, since Abraham left Canaan, he's been wandering, and we're the wandering Jew, and we have had so many persecutions, pogroms, and we have left land so many times. We are the ultimate immigrant, but yet you don't go around saying, I'm an immigrant, you know, you don't understand me, I don't understand you, I'm lonely. Nobody talks about it, but it's there. It's just there all the time. So through the book, I was trying to um, show people what it feels like to be an immigrant to be the one that's different, to have left behind everything that you cherished, everything you grew up with, that there is real pain in leaving behind the things you've left. There is, um, there is this uh, self-doubt of having made the right decision in leaving. Sometimes you're forced to leave, like all the refugees, and sometimes you choose it either because of educational opportunities, um, marriage, a job, you know, there's many good reasons why people immigrate, not just bad, bad reasons. But also I found it so interesting. There's really different kinds of immigrants nowadays. In the olden days, the immigrants were welcomed with open hands. The countries really wanted the immigrants to, to uh, plow the land, to fill up the factories, to populate the country. And everybody was wanted and accepted and, and, um, and needed. Nowadays, a lot of people have the feeling that, oh, my, we don't want the immigrants. They're going to take away my job, take away the social services. They're going to change the nature of the country because 
we wanted to immigrate, we wanted to go into the melting pot. They want to retain their, where they came from, their original customs, and they don't want to change. So it's a very different kind of immigrant situation that we have nowadays than we had in the early 1900s where I wrote my book. And one of the reasons I wrote that book was to preserve history and also to acknowledge and to be extremely grateful for the journeys that those people made in those days. Because without it, we wouldn't be here to discuss it. Right. I mean, sacrifice ensured that we had freedom and opportunities that we would not have had if we had been left behind. Well, you, you also touch in there about the struggle of of remaining faithful to your faith, of keeping your faith, of keeping Torah, keeping observance. What do you think can provide an immigrant or any person really with that ability in a new situation, in a new circumstance to really hold strong and keep keep strong to their value system? Well, the first thing that I did, that, that I also said in the book is to um, make sure that you keep company with people where you came from. Because that's your comfort zone. And the possessions that you brought with you become even more special because that's what you have. That's your, your, your memories. But the real memories is abroad. The real memories is in where you came from and the people that you left behind. And that is the real pain that they go through. But in order to immigrate successfully over here, you obviously have to have the desire. You know, you have to want to incorporated into a new place and I find that if they would just um, volunteer for anything whether it's in the synagogue in the community in the school setting anything that they do that they volunteer for some kind of job or project going on gets them in real contact working together side by side with other people and that's usually what breaks the ice hmm. and sometimes you're so overwhelmed though you don't have the chance to to a volunteer, but I guess that's that's part of making your priorities and setting. Right, exactly. Part of the community. So people are asking, what is the titles of the book? There are two books. One is called Lemons in the Fog, and the, ne the other book is called The Next Pair of Shoes by Chaya Rachel Zimmerman. Chaya Rachel, what, you, you mentioned briefly that you were in Machon Chana, which is actually a Chabad place of learning for young women. Can you tell us some inspiration that you have that you got from Hasidus, that you got from the teachings of Hasidus, that you got from that schooling or that has kept you in your life or that has propelled you forward in your in your work? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned before, we just feel that that God is manipulating circumstances. You know, um, when I moved to Chicago, that was a very significant move. And where someone chooses to live does have a, a bearing on who their friends are, their jobs, everything actually. So it, it's a it's a really um, it's a significant piece of life. And and what I learned is that the soul comes down into a body when it's born because it's going to have a specific mission to perform something positive in a specific place. And so I feel that God manipulates those circumstances either to convince you to stay where you are or to nudge you to move someplace else. And so, for example, when I moved to Chicago, I just knew, okay, I had a blessing from the Lubavitcher Rebbe to move here, and I knew that this was going to be the place where I was going to fulfill my mission, whatever that was going to be. So this is one thing that inspires me, how things are, are being manipulated around you invisibly, 
where you might not even see the hand of God working. Well, so that's that's interesting. Can you tell us a little about that blessing before you, before you continue? Sorry. <laughs> yes, we actually, um, we had several job choices after we got married. And um, four of those job choices were actually working in a religious setting as emissaries of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in four different cities. Chicago, the remaining city, was where my husband grew up. And um, my husband's father had a business. He wanted my husband to go into business, but he really weren't interested. My husband was a musician and he was going into the rabbinate and he wasn't interested. The Rebbe advised us that that was the best option for us mm-hmm. and told us to move to Chicago. So that's what we did with with uh, confidence. So I'm always fascinated how, you know, the Rebbe advised different people on different things and it's completely not what you would even think that the Rebbe would advise because he was so not in the box. He looked at each person and what they can contribute. As you said, you know, you're, you're moving to a different place or a different city and, and you're contributing to that city or contributing to your environment around there. And that's where you need to be. So you clearly needed to be where you are and you clearly are succeeding in where you are. Right. So I had some inspiration when I started writing. Um, I found um, just by accident, actually a very interesting um, uh, few paragraphs that the Rebbe said about writers. Oh, interesting. I try to incorporate that in my writing, and I really don't want to paraphrase this, so I hope you'll mind if I read it, but it is very, very valuable. Um, This was said in March of 1873. The Rebbe said, writing articles on any subject is is only an external reason for a newspaper journalist to use his abilities to spread Judaism. If you have the ability to influence newspaper readers, then you must find a way to give over the understanding that there is hashgacha pratis, which means divine providence, means God guiding you along the way. The third Lubavitcher Rebbe said that something that is published remains for generations to come. One whom Hashem has blessed with the talent and ability to write a book, no matter what the cover of the book looks like, no matter what the book's premise and content, it must communicate to the reader, the awareness that there is a master of this palace, mm-hmm. that there's a master in charge of this turbulent world. When you look at the world, you could cry out, it's a jungle. It all defies logic, ruled by wild men with wild actions. Where does one see the master of this palace? But if Hashem gave you the ability and guided you to write a book and provided a publisher for the book, then no matter whatever the book's plot may be, the inner dimension must be that when the reader finishes a part of the book, and for sure all of it, he must walk away with the conviction that despite the fools who think that the world runs randomly and that anarchy rules and might make right, all of that is merely on the surface. In the end, righteousness and goodness prevail. Hmm. Wow. I think that's something that, you yeah. know, would all keep in mind in our lives in general because our lives are really a story right our lives are just a story it's a, that's why i think we we're so interested in reading about stories of other people because it's kind of a little bit of a reflection of ourselves so if we could keep in mind that there's a master plan 
and all right. that we go through, I guess it helps helps us with any challenge that we do go through. Right. And I, and I try to put that concept of one thing leading to another, how you're actually being guided to go from a city to a city, a place to a place, a job to a job. It's all part of the journey. Right. And we don't really realize it in our, I mean, sometimes you do, you look back and you can see why something happened. So often we don't, but you know, sometimes we're, we're gifted with that kind of parting of the curtain where we can see beyond to why something actually happened. And then when we do see that, I guess that's, that's a great gift that we see how we've evolved as people because of the different steps. So that, that brings me to my last question to you. And that is what, do you find most challenging in life? Um, well, actually, now that I've become an author, I think I have maybe, um, what's it called, imposter syndrome, thinking, am I really an author? Because it's still very hard, and I, I don't have the craft that it would have had if I practiced 40 years ago. So I'm still finding it very challenging to, um, you know, to, to keep learning more, but I am, I am driven to learn more, to join a class, um, to uh, try new things, um, but I find that it, it is very challenging to continue on. But I have a few more novels in the works that I hope one already is under contract about high tuition and how a family tries very hard to um, do the right thing, whereas their teenage daughter says, um, "No, I don't like being out of school, and I have to change it." So it's a very also fascinating story. Okay, we look forward to many more things. I, what inspires me so much about you is that I think, you know, it's it's fascinating to see somebody who just keeps looking for new avenues of growth, you know, to change your craft at such an age and to excel at it and to just keep plowing further. You've had a an interesting life and in all the different things that you've been doing. And it's interesting to see that you can change change your craft at a later stage in life. And you can excel at it. And at so many stages in our lives, we as women are doing that. So I think that's a wonderful inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kai Ruffle. And you, thank you for inviting me. It really was fun. Thank you. Thank you. And again, Kai Ruffle is the author of two books, Lemons in the Fog and The Next Pair of Shoes. And she tackles, she decided to tackle these issues, to become a writer and tackle these issues at a later stage in her life and teaches us about how we can all recreate ourselves and become really whatever it is that we might have wanted to become at one point or never even thought we were capable of. Like your professor was saying that, like you said, your professor turned you off from it, but you became a phenomenal writer. Thank you again for joining us, Chai Rachel. Thank you. Thank you for joining us.